This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I come to you today with an awesome guest, Mike Hayes. Uh, A little bit about Mike. His last duty job was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 2, which included 10 months as the commander of a 2,000-person special operations task task force in southeastern Afghanistan. A former White House fellow from 2008 to 2009, he served two years as Director of Defense Policy and Strategy at the National Security Council. He's an avid Red Sox fan. We'll have to talk about that. And Patriots fan. I did not know that before I had him on. Apologies to my Eagles fans. And lives in Westport, Connecticut with his wife and daughter. Uh, Mike, you know, you've been in a lot of high stakes situations and you talk about, you know, living this life of once in a lifetime experiences, uh, being held at gunpoint, threatened with execution, jumping out of buildings rigged to be exploded, helping amputate a teammate's leg and having to make countless split life and death decisions. Uh, you've written countless emails to family telling them how much you love them, just in case those were the last words they ever read. And you wrote a book, Never Enough. Uh, as I share with you, I'm I'm three quarters of the way through. And, you know, this is going to be one that I'm passing to the other side of the bed to put on my husband's nightstand because I love nothing more that with than books that share stories to explain concepts. Uh, that's the way I kind of wrote my book. And that's the kind of books that I like to read. So I, I love your book. Um, all of the proceeds from this book go to help Gold Star families. So um, important to know, this is uh, not just another seal writing a book. This is another seal that's going out to to do good and to help others. And uh, the proceeds from this book have helped to pay off mortgages of Gold Star families. So incredible. Mike, welcome to The Resilient Life. Ryan, thank you so much. You're right. I have been in a million high stakes situations, but none higher than this here today for this hour. <laughs> the, uh, you know, you're an absolute legend and a hero and an inspiration to so many, Ryan. I, you know, on, uh, certainly for me, but on behalf of, of everybody that I come across, thank you and your organization for all of the incredible uh, inspiration and, and lift up for this great nation and this great planet. So it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, you as well. You know, again, we were talking a little bit before. Um, we have a lot of similar connections and um, similar friends. And but as I started reading your book, as soon as you know, as soon as we connected and I got you on as a guest, I I ordered your book and I started reading it. And right away, um, I think I hadn't even started reading it, but I kind of opened it up and I opened it right to you know Alambar Province, two thousand and seven. And, you know, my first thought is like, oh, wow, you know, Mike was certainly there when my brother was deployed to the deployed to the Al-Ambar province. And, um, you know, just feeling that connection and knowing what you experienced over there at the time. And, and you share some stories um, of things that you were involved in while you were over there. And 
they're eerily similar to um, the types of things my brother was doing over there and um, and especially what happened to him on the last day of his life. And, you know, I think about um, the situation my brother was in, but it's hard to realize that that was happening like everywhere, every day, every minute with all of the men and women that were on the ground there. Yeah, Ryan. So first of all, it, it goes without saying also, you know, it, you you and your family have been thrown in incredible hard situation in life. And you're just such an example for somebody who handles that with uh, grace and, and, and elegance. And, 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 and instead of looking at your feet and looking down and in, you just continue to look up and out and, and how can you make a difference? And, and, you know, one of the things that helps me as I've, you know, buried many friends, not, not literally my blood brother, but, but people who I'm as close with my blood brother with, and, and it is, you know, one of the things I find helpful is I, I just think like, what would that person be saying to me right now? And I, I guarantee that, you know, your brother and all of his teammates and my teammates are, are, are looking down at us and just saying, you know, my goodness, thanks for, for you. We want you to be happy. We want you to be optimistic. We want you to be positive. We, we want you to know that we're, you know, this is an incredible nation. And, and, and while the outcome on that particular day was, was terrible, it wasn't what anybody wanted, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, everybody signed up for, for a, a cause larger than self and, and your brother and, and many of, of the Marines, all of the Marines and, and SEALs and whatever, they're just true heroes. And, and I've been humbled. I go right back to that place in 2007. We, we ate in the same chow hall. We walked the same grounds. We, you know, when I, in April, 2007, the statistic I remember, because that was around the surge, there were 37 Marines killed in my first 30 days of the deployment in and around Fallujah. And, and it just was horrifying. And, um, and at the same time, it was emblematic of a real problem that we had with, with uh, extremism. And, and like I like to say, simplistically is there were a lot of bad people trying to do bad things to a lot of good people. And, and that's what your brother stood for was, was stopping that, that, that evil. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I remember specifically, I happened to be at my parents' house. I don't know why I was here. I lived in New Jersey, but I was at my parents' house the night that President Bush came on and announced the search. And, you know, it was a controversial move um, because at that point there was war fatigue. People were saying, let's get out of here. We're done. And he's getting on the television saying, we're going full throttle. We're bringing more troops in. And after he spoke that night, and, and I was sitting in my parents' family room watching it. Travis is in Iraq at the time. Uh, my dad's phone rings, and it's Travis. And he called my dad to say, like, this is exactly what we need. This is the right decision. Like, I'm seeing it on the ground. And Travis loved to, like, call home and tell my dad, everything that the American public was saying that was wrong, you know, like they're saying this, that's not what's happening. You know, when they're saying, you know, the clashing of the Iraqi army with, with the American army, Travis was calling home saying, I am training the Iraqi army. These guys are my brothers. There is a brotherhood here, you know? So he was really trying to counteract a lot of the, the misconceptions that the, the media had on this side. And so I remember that night, my dad saying, you know, Travis is saying this is the right move. And, and again, it was, but it was the deadliest time 
uh, I think in, in probably all, all of the, the time we were there over in Iraq, you know? Yeah, it, it was, it was. And, and, you know, it's interesting, Ryan, and I don't know how you felt with this. I'd be curious your thoughts, but you know, with the 20 year anniversary coming, it's really easy for a population to look back and say, oh, we didn't have the right intel and we went in for the wrong reasons. And I, I have two responses to that. I'd be curious of yours. But number one is we made the best decision. Our nation made the best decision that we, we knew how to make with the information that we had at the time. And, and, and that's, you can't, you can't go back and, 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 and change the information that we had at the time. And so sure. Could things have been done better or could we have better, have had better information? Absolutely. But you know, when, when, whether it's a decision to go into Iraq or, you know, I'm, I'm in a role as a COO of a large software company called VMware, you know, there's nobody in our 40,000 person employee base that shows up to work and says, what can I go screw up today? You know, it just doesn't happen. You have to judge people on their on their intent, not their actions. And um, and the intent was good. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, there like I just referred referred to, there were a lot of really bad people oppressing some really good people in Iraq at the time, irrespective of any argument about weapons of mass destruction. There was oppression and evil doing evil things to very good innocent women and children. And and that's just, do you stand for that? Yes or no? I know what your brother stood for. Yeah, I I have strong feelings on this. I actually um I try to refrain from heavily taking one side or position too much on social media because, you know, I I, I want to try to remain neutral and hear all points, but but I put something out on LinkedIn on the 20th anniversary, not intending to, in fact just uh, intending to thank those that had served in, in Iraq for the last 20 years, right? But I woke up that morning and every morning I read the Wall Street Journal, I read the New York Post, uh, I'm looking at Fox News, I'm looking at CNN, and there was nothing positive, not one thing positive about the 20 year anniversary of the war in Iraq. Um, the, the only person that put anything positive out was my friend Griff Jenkins, who is at Fox News and was over in Iraq for many years with Ollie North. And um, just celebrating the the men and women that he stood side by side with. I mean, he's a reporter, but everything was so negative about the disastrous mistake that was made. And then what killed me even more was multiple, multiple sentiments about the loss of life in vain, right? Senseless loss of life. And I felt so compelled to say like, and all of these people giving their, their opinion on what, like you said, like the intention was there, but there was a lot of people who are, you know, 30 years old at the time. So what they were 10 when the war started that had these really eloquent, you know, statements about how the war was a total fraud and, you know, you know, you know, everything they're saying. Right. And so you know, I just kind of put it out there and I'm like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you believe this war was just or not. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what any of you thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. But what does matter is that we as a society have an obligation on days like that to, you know, and, and listen, we're a free society, criticize all you want, but don't forget that there are thousands of men and women that gave their life over there, right? And they did give it for a just cause. It may not be the cause you thought it was, but they gave it for a just cause, okay? And, and there are more thousands of men and women that came home injured, wounded, mentally, physically. 
And so for us to just bypass that and not honor those sacrifices on a day like that, it was super frustrating for me. And, and I put it out there and I, I expected to get a little bit of pushback and I did, I, you know, there were some people that still wanted to harp on the fact that like all of these men and women died in vain and nothing kills me more than when somebody says my brother died in vain. Like my brother did not die in vain. My brother knew exactly what he was doing over there. He believed in the mission and regardless of weapons of mass destruction or not, you know, he died protecting this country. And, you know, and when I have Mustafa, his Iraqi interpreter sitting in our living room, thanking our family for the oppression that he was able to get out of because of men like my brother that were over there, like that's, that's what I see. And that's what these keyboard warriors will never see. Right. And so I put that post out there and two days later, you know, and again on, on LinkedIn or Instagram, uh, you know, the comments start and then they turn into like infighting between each other. Right. And then that's where I just like disengage because then people are fighting each other in the comments. And two days after I put that post up, I get an alert and it says general Petraeus has commented on your, and I was like, Oh crap. And I'm like, what do you write? What do you write? And I'm <laughs> out. And, and he just wrote Ryan, thank you for sharing the sentiments of those that were there and knew what was happening. And I was like, yes. You know, Amen. Like that is so spot on. Like yeah. you're really like focusing on the individuals and the, the service members is the thing to focus on. And, and I believe so, so, so right. And I didn't read Petraeus's comments, but, but, but I, I'm not surprised by them. He's a, he's a gentleman and a scholar. And, uh, you know, I also would feel compelled to say, you know, Colin Powell was a White House fellow. There are only about 600 of us, 650 alumni. They pick 14 a year. Uh, from all walks of life. It's not just a military thing. And um, and I will tell you that I have sat down with Colin Powell in a very small setting and talked to him about this. And and he, of course, uh, American hero, and, and, and people can agree or disagree on his decision about, you know, testifying and what intelligence was there or not. Listen, what I would say is, if you're in the arena and you're a public servant, you are going to have criticism if you're doing your job. And, um, and so, you know, I, I find that sometimes with the, uh, you know, if you think about what your post did, is it spurred dialogue? And, and that really is the foundation of democracy. I hate sometimes reading some of the things. I don't get deep in like any, any of these, the, the vitriol that goes back and forth. What I personally do is I see it and I don't actually read it all. I just, in my mind, I say, you know, thank God that that's there because that's what we, that's what you, what your brother and me and a right. million others fought for was so that we could have that that dialogue. I'll say something that I've never said publicly before now, which is it, it's in the line of like kind of what we're saying here. You know, recall about a couple of years ago, kneeling for the anthem was a very, the national anthem was a very hot topic, you know, and and, and while, and I, I've thought a lot about this, like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I, we're, we're, we're building this this Medal of Honor Museum in Arlington, uh, Texas. I'm, I'm on the board of it. And the Jones family is is um has, has been huge supporters. Charlotte Jones is um is the chair of our board. I chair the nom and gov nominating and governance committee. And I, I see a lot of this very firsthand. And you can think about this from a player perspective, from the owner perspective, from the fan perspective. There are so many different perspectives. And as I thought about all of this, very complicated issue. Look, I, I where I net out is simple. I would personally never, ever, ever, ever in a million years kneel for our national anthem. That said, you know what, if you want to kneel next to me, that's why I fought. 
I fought so you can have your own free will and your own decision to make your own decisions. And so while I disagree with somebody individually with kneeling, I don't care about that. What I care about is that they're able to express what they want to express for this great nation. And that's democracy. And that's what your brother fought for. That is so true. Exactly what I said when I had uh, Chris Long, Howie Long's son, who was a former Philadelphia Eagle on, and he was part of that kneeling. And, and he said to me, like, because I, I said, I will never kneel for our flag. What the flag represents to me, like I would never kneel for it. And he said, well, no one would ever expect you to kneel for the flag. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't get a, it's not like I get a pass because I'm connected to the military. I had someone who died. Like, that's not what it means, you know? And, and I, and I respectfully, like you said, agree with him. You want to, he, he likes to do the thing where I never kneeled. I would just put my hand on those that did kneel. Great. You know, that's fine. And I believe the same thing. And I know my brother would believe that too. Right. Um, is he going to kind of look at you and be like, really? Probably. But at the end of the day, that's, that's what these men and women who, who, who serve and protect us protect those freedoms, those freedoms to criticize what they're doing, those freedoms to kneel for the flag. And, you know, another thing that I will say when it comes down to like these, these huge decisions that are made, like it could have been very easy. Listen, during that surge, you know, if you look at the scope of the last 20 years, there's been different moments of controversy in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there's been different times where our service members have have died during different times where the parents have been in uproar. You know, there's been helicopter accidents that are being talked about as conspiracy theories and shot down by us. I, I'm sure you've heard it all, right? And during the surge, you know, when men and women were dying every single day at that time at the evening news would put the faces up. Like I I'll never forget two days after Travis died on CBS evening news. It ended with a montage of like, these are the men and women we lost in Iraq. And it was just showing their faces and their names, you know, and that, that went away. Right. Um, and they, and I think, you know, purposefully because it was just, every day in your face, more and more troops were dying. So much so that President Bush took away uh, the viewing at Dover. So it used to be open to the public, to the media. Well, it was just a few months before Travis died that he closed it off and he said, it's all private. And so I remember being at Dover and it was raining, it was cold, and it was my dad, my mom, my husband and I, and Travis's Keiko officer, who happened to be one of his friends from the Naval Academy, thank God. So it was like another friend for us, right? Uh, somebody to support us in that way. But there were five of us standing there as that um, plane touched down and Travis rolled off, that his casket rolled off. And I remember it being so solemn and being like, so pissed, honestly, and thinking like, this is not the homecoming he deserves. You know, we wanted people to understand what that sacrifice meant. And so Travis's Keiko officer, who was also a helicopter pilot, we concocted this plan. My dad was um, drilling at MAG-49, an airbase unit right out of Philadelphia. And um, I don't know the specifics of how we worked it out, but instead of Travis going right from Dover, which normally they get picked up and go to the funeral home, wherever it may be, they hop on another, they put them on another plane. We put Travis on 
the Marine Corps helicopter and his friend Steve Cantrell flew him to uh, the hangar at um, Willow Grove and we opened it to the public. Oh, wow. And we had, we opened it to the public and the media. And from there, the funeral home took him, took it in the casket, took the casket in a hearse to the funeral home. But we had hundreds of people show up at this hangar to watch the helicopter land and to watch the Marines in dress blues take Travis's casket off. And I'll never forget turning and seeing a little girl. And I don't know who she was. Um, You know, she's probably 30 years old now, but she was holding a sign that said, welcome home, Travis. And I remember thinking like, that's why we did this. This is why we did this. This is why Travis's homecoming wasn't five of us on a rainy tarmac. And those individuals had a chance to see an American hero come home who had given his life and put that face and that name to the public. And so that was really important for us. And my dad always used to say like, when the newspaper reporters and the media knocked on our door, our, our initial instinct was to be like, no, right? We're grieving. We're, this is the biggest tragedy we've ever suffered in our life. But we actually said yes. And we opened our doors to talk to anyone and everyone because my dad constantly said, I need people to know who Travis was. I need people to know his story. And so... You know, that for us was kind of a different take on how we approached the whole situation. And and frankly, we haven't stopped ever since because now we've taken Travis's name and and really used it as a catalyst to put a name and a face to this generation. Absolutely. And and I know that it's that Travis is a, is almost metaphorically Travis now, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because Travis represents all of the Travises. And 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 so thanks to you and your family for for um for doing the right thing and getting the exposure because you're, you're so right. You know, um, one of the things that I do with my family is when we come, everybody in America has crossed some road where they'll see some little, you know, faded Brown sign that says like the specialist so-and-so road or section of a road or something like that. Every single time I do that now, I Google the person and I read about the person and I would challenge people in America when they pass roads with names I don't care when it, what what conflict it's from or what or what great civic action the person that might not even have been military, but understand who our nation's heroes are, and it's along the same light of what you're saying. But it's you know the stories that you get when you you know for for a minute and a half you read someone's like citation or something about them on Google. To me, that's keeping that person alive, and that's the the hashtag never forget kind of kind of movement and moment. Yeah, I I always say you know when people be when people ask what can we do on Memorial day and like in this, this world of technology, get on your computer and just search fallen hero from any conflict. Right. And just learn one story each year, commit to learning one story and not just learn the story, but pass it on. You know, as you're sitting at your Memorial day barbecue, drinking a beer and eating a hot dog, which I hope you do. And I know that's what my brother was doing on Memorial Day every year, you know? And so when you do that, like share the story of a man or woman that gave you the opportunity to be doing that. It's hundred percent. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. I wrote an op-ed, I think it was two Memorial Days ago that was published in the USA Today. And and one of the things that I, I would love to share on this topic is, 
is that the military doesn't have the corner market on service. Everybody says, oh, that's the ser the service. And, and, you know, we've got 335 million Americans now, whatever that number is, and and, and less than 1% have, have served through time. You know, that's a, that's a pretty small representation in, in the nation. What I try to do is say, you know, the military doesn't have that corner market on service. You can just, everybody's got different passions and abilities and interests. And so how do you, 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 everybody in America, use your own passions and gifts and abilities and interests to go serve the person next to you. You know, the what's really missing for me today is the concept of ownership in America. We all own America. We might have different ideas, like you were saying, try to, let's not alienate uh, unnecessarily. Let's, let's have our own views, but be respectful of other views. Excuse me. And service is about serving others. And that's what I really think on Memorial Day and, and days like that. It's a great day to push people who haven't worn a uniform to say, no problem that you haven't worn a uniform. There's zero judgment there. But what have you done for your local church or school or library or cleaning the forest or whatever it is that Teach for America, you name it, get off the freaking sidelines and go do something so that you own America. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of mandatory service? I'm 100% for it. But I think if and only if, and this is what, uh, you know, Stan McChrystal and I are, are, are good friends. He's a wonderful American, great American hero. This is one of the things that I've seen him take on over the years yeah. is really vocally push for this as well. I'm in Stan's camp on this one. And I believe, though, that there's an if and only if. And that is if the selection of service is broad enough. We've right. got introverts and we've got extroverts. We've people got, uh, you know, we've got people of all, you know, race, sexualities, gender, you know, you, you name any division in, that you could take. How how is everybody equal, have equal opportunity to go serve the nation? And, and we need choices that can resonate with people. And, and so that year of service should be mandatory, but with a good amount of different ways to choose uh, how to go support this great nation. Yeah, I completely agree. But I do think that there is something transformational about serving in one capacity or the next. And like, and as, as small as it is, you know, I took my, we do service expeditions uh, through the Travis Mannion Foundation. So that's our big initiative with Families of the Fallen is we help them work through their grief by serving others. So we do week-long service expeditions where they give back and honor their loved ones through service. And um, every year we go all over the place, really cool um, experiences and uh, we go to Puerto Rico every year. This was our fourth year in Puerto Rico. And I took my 13-year-old daughter. I brought my 16-year-old daughter as well. But more importantly, my 13-year-old daughter, um, I, she lives in a world of friends and candy and Snapchat. And, and I just needed her to like break that barrier down. And she was so affected by this trip for a week to just see you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're sitting down and you're like, there's kids that are starving all over the place. And like, it goes through your kids yeah. here and out the other. And for seven days, every single day, she experienced that. And it was eye-opening for her. And I think when I see just that seven-day experience for this 13-year-old kid, like imagine 18-year-old kids across the country having to take a year or two years to you know, find out what more there is in this world and how much more they can give. You know, I think it could be, uh, I, I think oh. it could be truly changing for society at large.
hugely transformational. And I yeah. smiled in the mid middle of that because, uh, because, you know, my grandfather was at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 41, when it happened, he became the, he was the, the first, he test piloted all the Navy's first helicopters. And, uh, and he was just a, an incredible hero and, and probably the person, one, definitely one of the people I looked up to most in my life and had the greatest influence on me. But one of the things that he really emphasized to me was that, you know, hey, Michael, when you have it hard, he was one of the few people that called me Michael. I'm, I'm Mike unless somebody's either mad or it's my grandfather. And, uh, and he said, you know, Michael, whenever you have it hard, just recognize that there are others who have it harder. And the best thing you can do is go find somebody who has it harder and go help him or her. And there is something so healing, I know, for our, our Gold Star families that we work with. And I say that myself because I feel it when I go on these expeditions um, to just kind of step out of your own shit, for better lack of a word, right? And, right. and see, like, no matter how bad you think you have it, uh, somebody has it worse. And one of the things I think is so beautiful in the communities that we're in, you know, when I was in Guatemala and I've been to Puerto Rico now three times is the happiness and joy of the people that you're helping. And they have nothing. They literally have nothing and they choose happiness and they choose joy. And every little thing that is given to them is with such deep appreciation and I was reading in your book, and, and I loved it. One of the first things you talk about in your book is you talk about this idea of like, you make your own happiness, right? You make, you, you kind of choose it. And you said, you know, I, I say to my, my daughter, uh, make it a great day, not have a great day, but make it a great day. And I was like, I love that, right? Like have a great day. That's like leaving it up to chance. Like, I, you know, okay, let's see if I have a good day. Like make it a good day, that becomes, it falls on you. Like you are the one that decide if you're gonna have a good day. So two days ago, I dropped my my 13 year old and my eight year old off at school and they're getting out of the car. And I say, make it a great day. And my little eight year old, he's the sweetest little thing. He said, okay, mommy, I love you. And I said, honor, that's my 13 year old or 14 year old. I said, honor, make it a great day you get to make it a great day. And she looks at me and she goes, mom, you're so cringy. And she closes the door and walks out. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, that is so touching. I love hearing that. Thank you for sharing that story. And you know what? Uh, kids are great at make, having statements like that and then <laughs> and then imitating it later on and it resonates yeah. later on. You know, my daughter's 22. I'm not sure if you were ever 22 and uh, didn't listen to your parents, but uh, you know, uh, no, my, my, my wonderful daughter, same thing, you know, for 22 years, like, go, hey, make it a great day. It's, a, it's an active verb versus a passive verb. Is the world going to happen to you or are you going to go happen to the world and not just create great things for yourself, but be more focused on others than self. And, you know, of course the, the you know, you talk infinitely about resilience. And one of the things that I've been asked in, in, in the business world a lot is, uh, you know, with the pandemic, how do you think about resilience and how do you think about these types of things like what you're talking about now? And I think it's very simple because, you know, elite teams, whether it was your brother's Marines or my SEALs or wherever people serve or wherever, whether it's uniformed or not, an elite team to me is a team that recognizes that some people will be relatively up and some people will be relatively down on any given day. Yeah. And how do the people who are relatively up help the people who are relatively down? Because that really takes uh, perception and EQ and awareness and courage to sometimes even have the hard conversations. 
and then to reach in and help people who are down. Because then, you know, a week or a month or a year later, the, the roles will be reversed. The person who was up helping will inevitably need, need help. And, and that's, that's the way the world works. It, it, life is, is a series of chapters and sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long, but, but it all, there is nobody that, that, that goes through a whole a life, no matter how long or short, that doesn't have these chapters and, and, and need things. And, and, and so that's, I think, ties very nicely with the, the, the title of your, your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, so, so I'm going to keep working it. I, I will continue to say, make it a great day until, you know, again, I say a lot of things that makes my 14 year old cringe. As she hey, parents are I, supposed I, to be cringy. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I always do this. I'm like, Matt honor. I'm a cool mom. You know, I try to do this, like, I'm a cool mom and it doesn't work, but, um, but I'll keep trying. And, but, you know, but I see it in those little moments where, you know, she's, she's applying for a award at her eighth grade graduation. And the award is about, uh, it's a leadership award for what you do out of school. And she can't, and they have a bunch of different ones. And she said, mom, I think I'm going to apply for this. And I said, well, why do you think you're going to apply? And she said, because I think that some of the things I've experienced, especially when we were just in Puerto Rico are things that other kids have not got to experience. And I think that I can talk about what it means to, to lead other people. And, you know, and she was very eloquent in the way that she put it. And I was like, I love that. And I 100% think that you should go for it. So for parents out there that that don't think their kids are listening, I mean they're not at the end of the day, but but when it comes around full circle, they are. You know, I, you keep putting it in their heads and they hear it. You know, so hundred um, percent. Yeah, one of the things that, as I was again reading into your book, uh, one of the first things I came across, and and you know, you put up a post um, the other day about your your teammate, and we'll get into that, but. You talked about um, you talk about a lot of your friends that you served with that were SEALs and, you know, different stories with them. And the one name jumped off the page to me, Joe Price. Oh. And um, so um, background story there. Um, my dad went to uh, did a postgrad year after high school at the Hill School, um, which is uh, right outside of Philadelphia. And he played lacrosse, um, went on to play lacrosse in college, but did a post-grad year there and played lacrosse. And his lacrosse coach was a man by the name of Harry Price. And my dad, I knew Harry Price's name as I was a young child, because my dad would talk about this coach he had for one year, Harry Price, and what he learned from Coach Harry Price. And shortly after Travis died, um, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, again, at that time, you know, you lost somebody, there's like a front page story about, about the service member during that time. And on the front of the Inquirer is the story about Joe Price. Um, and my dad's reading it and he's, you know, bunch of expletives like, oh my God, that's Harry's son. And my dad had no idea that Harry had a son that was a seal. Um, and that was a tough loss. As you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of controversy within his death and, and what happened. Um, I've been to Puerto Rico with his sister. She came with us last year. She is, um, uh, she is the most eccentric, uh, incredible woman. She's all over the place. And, um, 
She has deep love for her, her brother, Job. That was really tough for my dad to, you know, kind of hear about Harry losing his son and, you know, a, a commanding SEAL officer. Um, I just wanted to share with you that connection to Joe. Well, Ryan, thank you. I didn't know that connection and and it's really touching and it's really hard. I'll, I'll you know, share. So Joe, for, for everybody, Joe, Joe Price and I were uh, classmates in SEAL training. You know, the classes, my class started with 120 guys, 19 finished, you know, I made fun of Joe because he got sick and actually finished the class behind me, but uh, we were roommates, <laughs> excuse me, we were roommates for the first three years in the SEALs and, and couldn't have been better friends and, you know, roll the clock forward 15 more years. I was the commanding officer of SEAL team two, went over to Afghanistan, led the whole team in special operations task force. Job came in uh, to relieve my team and to come actually relieve me, moved into my room uh, I hadn't lost any Americans in the 10 months that I was there and, and, um, and Joe lost four in his first month and then took his, his life in the, in the bed that I slept in for the previous 10 months. And it was just incomprehensible to me. And I, and Ryan, I think, you know, what I'll share, which I don't think I've talked about publicly either, uh, it, it, quite so openly as I will here, but the, you know, on a when I was back home on a Friday afternoon, I picked up the red line, the secure phone to call Job and just check on him and say, hey, how are you doing? Is there anything I can still help you with from back here, et cetera? And, uh, you know, we there was a new policy where you needed a four-digit PIN in order to get your call uh, placed overseas. I didn't have a PIN. I wasn't going to call somebody back in at work at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And I was like, screw it. I'll, I'll, I'll call him on Monday. He took his own life on Saturday, and I, 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 I think I'm the one of the very, very, very few people that could have detected in him what was going on in his head, and and could have done something about it. And and look, that's really hard. Like I, I beat myself up over that many times, but at the same time, I also, I also don't because I know, I know that you know, uh, I know what he would say to me, and. Um, and um, and these are these are hard hard things. I think that the most one of the most important things to understand is the importance of uh, of what I now call being intrusive in other people's lives. You know, we we often hear intrusive as a bad word, and I I uh, I I have now asked the awkward question of like, have you considered harm to self? Thousands of times. You know, out of every hundred times I ask it, there are ninety nine awkward's, but there's one person who says yes. And, and, you know, Ryan, I'm sure you're the same way. I'll take the 99 awkwards for the one yes any day of the week. And so getting, being intrusive and helping people is why we are here. And it goes back to my comments earlier. There are all chapters in life and, and no matter how bad things are, the, 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 the brain is a strange thing and it can work with, there are, it's real sickness. It's, 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 um, it's real sickness or disease or, you know, mental health is a real issue that is not like, Oh, uh, you know, early on, the stigma of suicide was like, oh, that person must have been weak. They just wanted a way out. Nothing could be further from the truth and false. And so I think we're starting to understand that. And my prediction is we will start to understand this more and more over the coming decades and look back at, our, at this chapter of Iraq and Afghanistan and in this spate of suicides and, and understand it a bunch more. You know, I, I, I will acknowledge, you know, today's today's uh, it was a, a week ago, Monday. Uh, Mike Day, a really dear friend, uh, took his own life, and and Mike was a, an American hero who was on, on my at my team. I chose him to to go forward in Iraq and and be part of a turnover with SEAL Team Four ahead of us. And and um, on the first operation, Mike was shot twenty seven times, 
He uh, lived through all of that, continued to take out the four uh, you know, terrorists who were holding an Iraqi family against their will, saved the Iraqi family. And, um, and, and Mike, was there just couldn't have been a greater American. And here it is, you know, in, that was 2007. Here we are in 2023 and Mike takes his own life. It's just like these are very, very hard problems. Yeah. You know, I didn't know Mike, but I certainly was familiar with his story. Uh, he wrote a book called Perfectly Wounded. Um, and that week he took his life. I know a Marine that took their life. Um, I think there were three service members in the same week that I heard of that had taken their life. And, you know, with Mike, like he was a, a high profile veteran, right? And so I'm really having trouble kind of wrapping my head around this idea that nobody saw any of these signs, right? And And how scary is it that, and I don't want to, I don't want to say just because he was high profile, but you think like he's got all these people around him, right? You would imagine that he he has some sort of network and circle and and this idea that nobody saw how he was suffering. And and I wonder, like, honestly, I'm just, I'm stumped at where we're going wrong with this epidemic that is happening. It's It's scary. And I, I don't have the answers. Uh, I certainly don't have the answers, but I have a lot of questions. And I continue to wonder what we are doing wrong that we are not spotting. And and again, like I keep pushing out on social media, like it's okay because I think the first thing, and you said it is like being intrusive. I think we are still having a hard time overcoming the stigma of being afraid and thinking that like, talking about suicide is going to give people an idea of like, Hey, Mike, are you thinking about killing yourself? And all of a sudden that puts it in your head. Like we wasn't going to kill himself before, but you just asked him. So now he's thinking about it. It doesn't like, work like that. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. It's, you know, I was sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Brian. Uh, you know, so I was pretty broken up when I got the news and my wife was like, gosh, it just seems so simple. Why isn't there just a spreadsheet of like, of people's names and when was the last time somebody checked in on the person and 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 it's so right but at the same time it's just so freaking hard to bring that to life you know and and I will I will say that you know there are some cases where people don't see it that's for sure there are other cases where people see it and the person just does every the 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 the, the person does everything they can to shut everybody else out and no one knows how to penetrate that barrier that the person has put up and, and it's almost impossible to do so. And what do you do in those cases? Those are really tough situations. And so, look, every case is a little bit unique, but there are patterns and themes. And we, it shouldn't be complicated to say, okay, you know, you, you you reached out to this person and they didn't answer, or you you know, you, or the person's doing everything they can to avoid you. What do you do? I don't think a lot of people know the answer to that question and, and know how to handle that. I certainly would struggle with that myself, and I consider myself relatively more informed than most on this topic. I, I, you know, through the work at, at TMF, what, you know, we, we measure kind of, we, we do surveys for all of our veteran members. We try to track where they are within their mental health scores and, you know, positive mental health. And, and we measure everything from their sleep patterns to employment and everything under the sun. And, you know, there is a, an, a national statistic that says, um, 60% of 60% of those that are um, 
feeling like they they have suicide ideologies are not connected, right? They're just disconnected from community. And so like, again, when you get back to this like kind of simplistic idea of like community and relationships, right? That's, those are big drivers in making sure that you are finding a path to your, your mental health and well-being and being in a good place. But like you said, it's so, it's so simple, right? But it's also so incredibly complicated because when you have this, you know, you may be calling your buddy, but he may live in Arkansas and you don't get the answer. Like, what are you supposed to do? Hop on a plane and, and fly to Arkansas. And then you get there and he's like, man, I've just been busy. I'm on the ranch. I'm doing good. Like, sorry, yeah. I'm able to get, get back to you. Right. And so it's these like fine lines between like, are you, are you over exaggerating if there's an issue or are you again in that place where you're regretting that you didn't make that phone call? Right. So, um, but I think about it a lot and, and what's really interesting and I don't know if there's any correlation, but yesterday I interviewed a Marine, 100-year-old World War II veteran. He's going to be coming up on the podcast uh, soon as well. And he, um, he fought in the Battle of Okinawa for 81 out of the 82 days. Now, I tried. He's 100 years old. He's in palliative care. And so I wanted to capture some stories. And he had, he had some incredible stories. Um, but I kept trying to talk to him about, like, the, the, the battle, right? Like what he was experiencing in that battle. And he would say like, I don't remember. But the things he did remember was playing cards and poker with his friends at, at night um, on the Solomon Islands. He remembered, you know, making a makeshift raft and taking it to another island because they heard there was beer there. And so his mind had like, and his daughter actually said to me, he blocked out the other stuff. It's not that he doesn't remember, he's blocked out. And so he, you know, he started to open up at the end because I, I guess one of his jobs essentially was to clean um, when when guys were killed and their, their wallets would come back, their dog tags. His job was to clean the blood off of all of them so they could be sent home. And I tried to dig in a little deep into like what he was feeling at that time. And, and really he said, I just remember thinking that could have been me, right? But but when I tried to have him talk about his experiences of war, like in the heat of the moment, he couldn't articulate that and frankly said, I don't remember that. But I do remember after that happened, I was playing pokers with the guy, playing poker with the guys. And so I started to think about like where we are today, like this generation is massively open, talking about everything, right? And so you think about all like the the grandpas and like, you know, my dad, my grandfather was fought in World War II. I was with the Army Air Corps, did a bunch of missions over Germany. And I don't know anything. And, and when I asked my dad, my dad's like, yeah, I don't know too much about his service. We didn't talk about it. That is a common theme. You didn't talk about they didn't talk about it. And here we are today. And, and, and this generation overly shares. Right. You know, every last minute of every battle and fight that they were in. And I thought yesterday, like, cause I had read your post. And when I was talking to this Marine yesterday, I was like, I wonder if there's a correlation of like, we continue to like bring all of this up to the surface, right? Like what, what's better, 
kind of just saying like that was a part of my life that happened and you know maybe I docu document it for perpetuity but it's not something I'm going on podcasts every day and sharing this story of this battle and this story of this like and again I may be wrong but I was just trying to find like is there something that because the suicide epidemic was not happening post World War II they came back and they got jobs and they went to work right yep and and, and that was it and and so I don't know um these are all just things that go through my head when I'm falling. No, I think, look, Ryan, I think you're hitting on one of the most essential parts of the, the fabric of the nation. It is about community. It is about connections with others. You know, this is my, my very non-scientific answer is I totally agree with you. The If you think about, you know, being in combat and hearing really heavy machine gun fire and, and having a choice of either moving forward or backward, just to make it very simple. The the um, you don't move forward because of uh, a red, white and blue flag or democracy or apple pie. The reason that you move forward is because of the love of your teammate next to you. And, and you know, when most of us are in our 20s, whether it was your, your you know, your brother, me, whatever, when we're, we're in the thick of things, we're not we're, we're pretty uncomfortable with the, the L word, you know, love. You know, but but when you're 52 now, you look back and you're like, man, that's all it was, was love for your teammates. It's really why you you do things. And so if you take that lesson, I think that's very easy to comprehend from a no matter who you are, whether you're you've been in combat or the service or or not, the uh, the real thing is, okay, if that's true, then what do we do and what do we do differently in our daily lives to help others have more connection, more purpose, more meaning? That is the last third of my book is around the reason I wrote it is to help people think about their own you know, meaning and purpose and impact because an impact in a meaning-filled life is not a life that's necessarily just focuses on gratification. It's a life that focuses on on uh, service and contribution. And it really is about making the connections that you're talking about. So I, I definitely agree with you. So do you think there's a difference between battlefield and boardroom resilience, right? You're on the other end of it now. Yeah, I think uh, yes and no. Um, of course, like, look, in the boardroom, no one's shooting at you. Like, it's very, it's that simple. But, you know, the uh, one of the things that I think is, is absolutely the same is that there is a mission, and this is what separates good companies from average companies. Good companies know how to describe the impact that they're having in the world. And, um, and and look, you don't need to be, uh, you know, you, you can you can choose to plant trees or or you know any sort of you know decarbonization or whatever your issues of the day are. You can certainly choose that. From a basic business perspective, knowing I, I like the GDP framework, gross domestic product. Gross domestic product is the total economic output of a nation or of the globe, and so it is just labor times productivity. What's the raw volume of laborers in the work in the workforce? And what is their productivity per hour, per minute, whatever it is? And so any so you can affect GDP by by only those two levers, labor and productivity. And so when you think about uh you know seals, marines, etc., look, at the end of the day, this sounds terrible, but to some degree we're commodities for the nation. You know, we're expensive commodities, very well trained, et cetera, but the nation's dollars buy Marines and they buy SEALs, they buy defense. 
And so if you can create more GDP, that gives our nation the ability to buy more defense, national security, or healthcare, education, or to pay down debt, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, in the boardroom, now the mission is saying, how do we create GDP for the nation and for the globe? Because that is what pulls societies up. And that's no different than the mission and mission of, of the national security community. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, I think a lot about this idea that how you take these these practices and you know you do it so well. Uh Jocko, uh, he does it well. You know, he's got a muster going on right now with Echelon Front. I have a couple of uh uh my teammates are down there and they're texting me like this is, you know, it's it's our our director of people and he's a young kid living in San Diego and he's like, This is awesome, right? And so I love how you can take these like applicable applicable skills that you learn on the battlefield and kind of turn them into how an everyday civilian can practice them, you know, in the, in their own career. And I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's needed. And I think it kind of changes the scope of what our workforce looks like, right? Like you said, like not everybody's going to serve in the military, but um, we say it all the time, like our organization is a veteran service organization. So we're here to provide programs and support to veterans. But on the flip side, our organization is a little bit different because our organization doesn't exist if veterans are not running our programs. So our programs are about veterans getting out there and being active in their communities, about yeah. mentoring youth, about you know working with businesses, about developing character. And we need our veteran population to do that. And what a waste for us as a society if you take off that uniform, Mike, and and you close the door, you you zip up the zip up the uniform and close the door, and you don't talk about any of that, and you move into another place. Uh, whereas you take all of those skills, all of that practice that you've learned, and you pass it on to these men and women who haven't put on uniform, but you say, listen, like these are applicable things that you can do uh, that are going to help you be better in business right? That are going to help you be better in society without having to put on the uniform. Totally. It, it, it's, it, it is the most important thing is learning from each other. And that's why we get, I'm personally passionate about sharing. That's why I wrote the book, Never Enough. It's like, how do I take 30 years of, of some successes and many uh, shortcomings and, 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 and just put, put that out there and say, here's what I've learned. And, 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 and likewise, I love to learn from others. And, and we learn like my, my dad and my grandfather used to say, you'll, you'll learn more from listening than from talking, but, uh, but from time to time, it's great to, to have a chance to talk, whether it's on a, on a, an engagement like this or in a book or whatever, and share what we've learned. And I think that's, I, I've certainly learned that one of my passions is giving giving back in that in that regard. Um, and, and I think that it also what you said is very good for the veterans as well because to go help it, it it continues to feed the soul when you're helping others. Yeah, and I think again, it gets back to like a lot of I think sometimes we get so overly complicated in not just veteran issues but societal issues. So when we talk about mental health and and the mental health epidemic and um, you know, it, it, it's not just within the veteran community. It's magnified and amplified within our veteran community, but this is a national issue. And sometimes we forget to just look at the simple solutions to it. Like, hey, are we making sure that these people are part of a community? Are we making sure that they have healthy relationships around them? 
right? We look for, I think we look for, we don't look for preventable models within our society for yeah. as it comes to mental health. We look for, okay, how are we going to handle um, from a clinical care perspective when they are in a mental health crisis, when they are struggling, right? Not like, what are we going to proactively do to help society not have uh, these acute mental health issues? And totally we, agree. We look at it completely backwards. Well, it's funny. I was uh, on a business trip to the UK recently, and I was went for a run in a park in in London. I, I ran past this chair. It was uh, this bench, park bench. It was said the loneliness bench, and I was like, and there was some other writing, and I was like, what the heck is that? I circled back, and you know, I'm gone are my days of being like, oh my gosh, I'm running my five minute whatever mile, and I'm on a time I can't stop, and I'm some robot, you know. So I, you know, just slowly went back to this chair, and it was actually a chair that said, if you're lonely and you want to talk sit on this bench. And it's wow. just like, it's such a cool, simple concept. It, yeah. it, it brings to life what you just said. Like, you, you know, if you're seeking a conversation, sit here. I love that. We need some loneliness benches in America. That would be kind of a cool project for somebody to take on, right? It was neat. It was neat. Yeah. Well, and, and again, like you think about, um, we're out of the pandemic. I'm not going to say we're coming out of the pandemic. I think the pandemic officially is over. Um, but that was just this magnifying glass of where we were, uh, in society. And so I think that was, that was really, uh, it was a tough spot, but I think we're starting to look at, I think we're starting to look at how we're coming out of it. Um, Mike, I want to end, uh, the, the way I end every, uh, conversation on the resilient life with you sharing with us what living a resilient life means to you. Wow, that's such a uh, such a great question that you always do, and I should be better prepared for it. I will just no, say, I don't want you prepared. No, 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 no. I, I I really deeply think focusing on others before self. The the saying that I've gone around the SEAL teams uh, and, and now in life just saying is team teammate self. You know, if you're focused on your team first, your teammate second, yourself last, like it's kind of a corollary of one of the things that that you learn in any base, basic branch of the military. But uh, I I think that that focus on others before self. It's it's uh, whether it's, you know, the the Jesuit principles or if it's very simply, uh, you know, based in in uh, in um, some of our, our famous Greeks with with names like Epictetus and Socrates, you know, that that stoicism. I think that really we've recognized for a long time that that a resilient life comes from doing more for others than self. You know, and, and and that's what I try to draw out. I, I appreciate you also asking about the book, because that is that is the whole goal is to do more for others than self. And I, I'm shamelessly plugging it because like you said at the beginning, I don't make a penny off of that book. I, I donate every single penny. Plus when I do do speaking, I, my speaking fees, all that go to the, a very quiet nonprofit. And, and I have paid off seven homes for widows of, of you know, gold star widows and, um, and uh, you know, families that have, have like that have, that do bear the, the very heavy cost of, of sacrifice that you know so very well, Ryan. And I just, such a pleasure to be around a person in an organization like like you and yours. Mike, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I could keep keep talking to you for a while. Um, lots more to dig into in this book, but others before self always. And um, pick up a copy of Never Enough. We'll put a link to it on our YouTube page. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Thank you again, Ryan. I appreciate you.